you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, please? Matthew chapter 2. We will be reading verses 1 through 12. I would invite you to please follow along with me in Matthew chapter 2, for these are the very words of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, In you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, as I said, Christmas Sunday is gone. Christmas is gone. I, I can't believe that the holiday season is already over. And uh, we're, we're not doing Advent any longer. But what's interesting is we just got done with our sermon series, those old familiar stories, looking at the, the nativity stories of Christ. And the one that we have just read is appropriate for today because this is how much of the world reacted after his birth in Bethlehem. This is not so much a birth story. This is what happened after he was born. Right, so when we began this series, we looked at the birth of Christ announced, Gabriel announcing the coming of Christ to Mary. And then we looked at the birth of Christ and we read about him being born in Bethlehem. And then we looked at, last week, we looked at the birth of Christ celebrated. The angels and the shepherds and Mary celebrating with great joy over who Christ is. So we saw the birth of Christ announced, his birth, his birth celebrated. Today what we're going to look at is the aftermath of his birth. And we're going to see the birth of Christ feared. The birth of Christ was feared by many. So what is it? How did much of the world respond to the news of the Messiah born in Bethlehem. Well, let's just do a quick overview of the text, make sure we understand the narrative, and then we will see how God's word, how the message of his word today is applicable for us during this season. The text begins with the famous wise men. Verses 1 and 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Who are these wise men? 
Your Bible might even not call them wise men, it might call them magi. Well, uh, let me begin by sort of deconstructing the popular narrative of the magi's journey to Christ. We have sort of commercialized it in America, and we've uh, been a little too, we've been at too much liberty with some of the details. The, uh, first and foremost, there was most likely more than three. Uh, you know, we sing the, the song, We Three Kings. In the Christmas cards, there's always three wise men. Uh, but there was very, very likely more than three. Um, the reason we, some people assume there's three is because they brought three gifts. And they just assume there must have been one gift per person, but it doesn't necessarily work that way. Uh, and just what we know about these Magi wise men, it was a large group. Uh, the large group didn't always travel, but it was a, there was a large group out east of these Magi, so uh, most likely it was more than three. Although, I mean, potentially it could have even been less than three. The, the, this narrative just doesn't tell us. But a group, uh, there, it had to have been at least two, because it's in the plural, two or more <laughs> wise men make the journey to Jerusalem. They come from out east and they come to Jerusalem and they inquire in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So these wise men, the, the Bible might also say magi, these magi, they know that Jesus is born and they know who he's supposed to be and they come out to see him and they inquire of him. Now, this is not bizarre. This is not uncommon. So, the, these wise men, why do we call them that? The, the Bible, if, it, if your Bible says magi, then that's just a very literal interpretation because uh, that was literally what their name was. It was magi, and we actually get our English word magician from it. Uh, but they, these were not magicians. They weren't sorcerers. Uh, but the reason your Bibles might call them wise men is because that's just a general, uh, an accurate interpretation of kind of what they were. Uh, they, they, they were such a, they, they had a lot to do, and so it's kind of hard to narrow them as, you know, doctor or lawyer or, um, these were just brilliant, brilliant men who were sort of skilled in many disciplines. The wise men would have been excellent philosophers, excellent religious scholars. They would have been probably doctors and scientists. If you remember back in the first century, uh, there wasn't quite as much discovery of our natural world like we have it today. So today we have so much discovered of the scientific world that doctors are very specialized now, right? You've got eye doctors and et cetera, et cetera. But back then it was easier for someone to kind of just be a general scientist. And so these people just had a high academic level of general science, and that would have included astronomy. That would have included, these, these are men who would have been excellent navigators. They would have known a lot about the stars. They would have used the stars. They maybe even would have had some pagan beliefs about the stars. We don't know for sure, but they would have been very gifted in knowing about the world outside of earth. And what's also interesting about these, this group is they were so powerful and so influential that they were oftentimes brought in to uh, whenever certain areas were having disputes over leadership, um, like whether someone was rightfully a king or rightfully a governor, or they would be brought in to discern the matter. So these were essentially men that would come in and say, okay, he is actually the rightful king or he's really the rightful governor, he needs to step down. They were sort of this objective third-party political group that had a lot of influence. And so because of that, it was not uncommon for them anywhere in the region, if a king was born, whether it was to Rome or to the Jews or to anybody, they would go out and bring gifts and honor that king. Because they had a political relationship with all of the rulers of this region. So this was not some bizarre, weird thing. This was a common practice for this group in this day. 
But this adds to the tension that we're going to get to in a minute. Because here the Magi come, and the text tells us they're from the east, so they probably would have been Persians, more specifically Chaldeans. But we, again, we don't even know that for sure. We don't know precisely where they came from. We don't know precisely what they believed about God and reality. We just know that they were a powerful, political, scientific group of men, and some of them came, which was custom, to honor a newborn king. And so they have come, these scholars have come, and they have inquired, where is the king to be born? And so imagine now what Herod is going through. Because their presence legitimizes Jesus's right to a throne, right? Herod can no longer just say, that's just some Jewish myth. Like, yeah, okay, the Jews have their weird religion, and they've got their coming Messiah, and they've got their king, but Rome is in power. Not some, it's not some Jewish Messiah. We're Rome. We're in power. These magi have legitimized Jesus. They said, this is a rightful king, and we have come to do what we do to all rightful kings, and that is honor him. So Herod now knows there's something more to this Jesus. He's not, this isn't just a rumor. This isn't just some small cult Jewish group who are worshiping some baby as some special. No, the whole world is now recognizing that this is a real king. And so we'll get more to Herod in a minute, but this panics. This makes Herod panic. So the Magi have come to pay honor to the newborn king, which we can't miss the biblical illusion here. There is an incredible allusion to Solomon in this text. If you remember Solomon, born of David, and he gets this great wealth as he becomes king of Israel, and Sheba, queen, she comes, a pagan queen, comes from the east to honor Solomon and bring him gifts. And so we, we sort of see Jesus fulfilling that Davidic role in an illusion here, the true child of David being honored and brought gifts from the east. Now, this gets us into, so how did they know about Jesus? They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have text messages. They didn't, how did they know about Jesus? Well, the text tells us the famous star, right? What do they say in verse 2? Where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. So they, there's a lot in church history that has been made about this star, and I wish that I could sort of nerd out and talk a lot about it. We don't have time to get into all the details that I want to today. But let me just say, there is a lot here we don't know. There's a lot about these circumstances we don't know. Matthew just didn't find it that important to tell us all the details about who the Magi are and what the star is. So we want to be careful speculating too much. If, if God has determined you don't really need to know that, then we don't need to rack our brains too much about it. But let me just briefly talk about this star. So somehow, these Magi, these wise men, these scholars, were anticipating a Jewish king and for some reason, they were under the presupposition that a special astronomical event would happen which would indicate his birth. Where did they get this idea? We don't know. There's a lot of theories. Uh, there's a prophecy of Jesus in Numbers chapter 24, a prophecy from a man named Balaam, Balaam. Uh, we've actually talked a, a little bit about him here from the pulpit. He was also not a Jew, but he, so he would have been like the Magi. He would have been a, uh, a Gentile academic who was also a prophet. And when he prophesied of the coming of Christ, he prophesied it as the rising of a star. And so some people think it developed from that. 
Um, but we, we just, we really don't know. <laughs> we, we don't know. But for some reason, whether it was through pagan astrology or through familiar readings of the Old Testament, they were anticipating a star that would indicate a Jewish king was born. And so obviously there was something about the star that was unique. They were looking for something unique. How do we know that? Because how do they describe it? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. Like this is Jesus' star. It belongs to him. It's not like the other ones. This is the unique Jesus star that we've been waiting for. And it finally showed up. So what was so unique about this star? Well, let me just give you my two cents briefly on this. I believe that this was an, a, a miraculous event. It's amazing how relevant this text is this year because we just got done. I saw all over Facebook, everyone celebrating the uh, Bethlehem star. So what everyone's calling it. It was, I don't know if any of you went out to see it, but Jupiter and Saturn is the closest that they'll ever be in our lifetimes. And it made this one night, it was just a very bright star. And then you could see the two planets. It really was quite incredible. I know this is cliche. I know it's cliche. But it's, it's just true. When I see stuff like that, it just reminds me of how just insignificant and small I am. And I'm standing here in Roswell, New Mexico, and I can see Saturn with my naked eye. It's, it was pretty incredible. But everyone's calling this the Bethlehem star. The reason people are saying that is because a common interpretation of Jesus' star was that it was not a miraculous event, but it was an actual natural event. And so some people have suggested it was a comet. Uh, some have suggested it was some kind of eclipse. Uh, but one of the more popular theories was that it was something like what we saw. It was two planets lining up and being incredibly bright and noticeable. And so they saw this as a natural event that God providentially lined up with Jesus' birth. Uh, and that's very possible. I, I don't want to speak too dogmatically on a fairly insignificant issue. But let me just briefly, since we're going through the narrative, tell you why I don't think that's the case. Because this star is something that showed up, disappeared, and showed up again. And it didn't show up again many, many hundreds of years later, which is what's going to happen when Jupiter and Saturn finally show up again. That's going to be a long time away, not just a few months away. But So what happens? Let's look at this text very carefully. They say in verse 2, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here's what happened. These people who live out in the east saw this miraculous star rise and they looked at it and said, that's, G that's the Messiah star. That's, that's the king star. So let's go see him. And I remind you, they didn't have cars. They didn't have motorcycles or dirt bikes. I mean, by the time it would have taken them to collect their things, plan the trip, organize the trip, and then the trip itself, again, we don't know exactly where they were coming from, but it was probably a multi-month thing. So this is uh, probably a few months at least after they saw the star. In the text, by the way, the star did not lead them to where they were going. They just saw the star and said, the Jewish king has been born. Let's go to Jerusalem where the Jews are. The star didn't lead them. That's why they don't know where to go. They go to Herod and say, he must know. We don't know where to go. We just saw the star. So they see this star and then many months later, they see Herod and they say, where is Jesus? And he doesn't know. So he has to ask the Jews, where is he? So that tells us something else about this star. It, it probably wasn't very, it wasn't amazing to the naked eye. 
right? Herod had no idea there was some special star in the sky. The Jews weren't talking about it. We like to think like in our Christmas cards that this was like this, uh, it was like an an eclipse. Who's going to miss it? Wow, look at that thing. Wow. But I don't think that's the case. I think this was something only the astronomers noticed. Only people who were familiar with the night sky, they would have said, whoa, 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 something's off here. But I think to the average person, it was just a normal night. But these academics saw, that's unique. That's Jesus' star. Let's go see the signal. But we don't know where to go, so let's go ask Herod. And then that's why after, what does the text say? It's kind of interesting. Verse 9. After listening to the king, so they're told they need to go to Bethlehem. But even where, that's not very specific. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So the star shows up again. But this time, it miraculously guides them to exactly where they need to go. And it does so by defying the laws of physics. Because here's the thing about stars. I know that from our vantage point, it doesn't look like uh, they're moving. But we are moving, and so the stars are always moving. If you were an astronomer and you were outside with your telescope and you put it in one place, the star you're looking at would eventually not be the star you're looking at. But this star has reappeared and it's miraculously guiding where they're going and it's come and it's rested. It's stopped. This, this is the equivalent of the sun stopping. Can you imagine like, like we have in the Old Testament where the sun miraculously stood in midair? This is the same thing. A, a star, some kind of you know, otherworldly light was in its orbit, and then it stopped, and it rested, and it guided them. And that's why they just burst, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This, this, so that's why I'm, I'm convinced this was not just some, you know, not annual, but some common providential event that happens every thousand years. I think God put a miraculous light in the sky. He miraculously guided these men to Christ in an unnatural way. And so what do they do? They show up and they worship the Son. They worship Jesus. Verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now this isn't the kind of worship that we're engaged in now. We don't know that these men believed Jesus was the Son of God or that they had saving faith in Jesus. Uh, but this was, worship is also a word that sometimes your Bible will translate as worship as service. Sometimes worship is in a non-religious setting when you just pay honor to somebody. You know, you bow to them or you recognize their honor. So they probably, it's, it's possible they knew who Jesus was and was worshiping as God. We don't, we don't know for sure, but most likely they were simply paying homage to a king. And it's pretty remarkable. And in that, don't we kind of sort of see a picture of Christ's future mission? Right here we have newborn baby Christ. Well, not that newborn. He's probably up, he's actually up to two years of age. We'll see that in a sec. Uh, But we have this young toddler, young baby. And we have Jews and Gentiles gathering around him, confessing him as king. So in this narrative, we we see a picture, we see a foreshadow of you, if you will, of the coming glory of the reign of Christ as these dignitaries, these Gentile dignitaries come from all over the world to worship him, which is exactly what many passages like in the Psalms, for example, prophesy would happen, that all the nations would come unto Christ, that his glory would be known as, it would cover the earth as the water covered the seas, 
Christ was the Messiah of all the nations, and that is foreshadowed in this event. So that's my take on the Magi and the star, but I want us to begin to focus and narrow our conversation, if you will, on Herod and the Jews. We are reminded in this text of what one pastor called the death of tyranny. The death of tyranny. You see, one of the things that make Jesus' birth such good news is Jesus' birth obliterates any possibility of a legitimate tyrannical earthly rule. And Herod knows that. Why is Herod afraid? Why does Herod care? Why does Herod care? He's not Jewish. Jesus isn't his Messiah. He's just the Jews' Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. Herod's of Rome. You see, Herod recognizes this province isn't big enough for two kings. He recognizes if this man really is a king, that's a threat to me. And he's right. He was right. You see, too much of evangelical culture has created a Christianity where we want to radically divorce the kingdom of God from the kingdom of men. And too many Christians are perfectly comfortable living in a secular society where Jesus has no influence and no role whatsoever. Because after all, this is, this is a democracy. This is not a theocracy. What business has Jesus to do with the United States government? But he has all the business in the world over the United States government. Because he is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. Every lord and every king on the face of the earth owes their allegiance to Jesus. They are never called in scripture one time to go into office and say, okay, it's time to pretend like Jesus isn't lord today. This is a democracy after all. They are called to honor and bow to their king from their office to not do so is the worst form of treason that you can possibly imagine. To pretend as if I'm a king and there is not a king above me. The birth of Christ brought in the death of tyranny. If there is no God, if there is no king, earthly tyranny is not only uh, possible or it's inevitable. Someone is going to be ultimate. Someone is going to have ultimate authority. And if there's no God there, if there's no divine king, then the next peg down the ladder is whoever already has it. So why not take more? If you take Jesus out of the picture, you are begging for earthly, tyrannical rule. You will then make government God. Because there's no God above them. So they can do whatever they want. The good news of Jesus' birth is the death of tyranny. All governments have a king above them. They do answer to somebody other than themselves. And so they need to receive their power. They need to receive their duties. They need to receive their obligations and expectations from the one above them. And Herod knows this better than most of us do. And so what's his plan I'm going to get rid of the competition. We can't coexist. Jesus is a challenge to my autonomy. He's a challenge to my rule. So let me go ask the Jewish leaders where he's going to be born, and then I'll convince the wise men to tell me so that I can go and take care of him privately. Now you say the text doesn't say that. The text says he wants to worship the child. That's a lie. How do we know that? Look at verse 16. I know we didn't read this. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, see, they, we read in verse 12, they didn't go and report to him, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or older under. What was Herod's intention? To get rid of the competition. He, wasn't, he didn't want to worship Christ. He wanted to kill Christ. So Herod panics. And so I want us to, again, hone in on this, and I want us to see two important things. Now that we've sort of done the overview of the text, I, here's what I want us to take away. So I'm calling this post-Christmas reflections. The first thing I want us to see is that the world is hostile to God. In other words, this text is kind of our wake-up call. Right, we had a great weekend just enjoying family and enjoying friends and enjoying God. That was the message last week. Just celebrate them this year. Just celebrate and enjoy. We kind of got to take a break from reality, if you will. Take a break from our jobs. Take a break. And just enjoy God and enjoy family. This text is sort of our wake-up call. It's time to get back to work. Christmas is over. And we need to remember the danger that we are in. We need to remember the importance of our mission. Because you see, while we were celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, we have to keep in mind, to the vast majority of the unregenerate world, this is not good news. Notice, it's not just Herod who panics, who also panics. God's people, the Jews. The Jews themselves are upset by this. Look at verse 3. When Herod heard, or forgive me, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It wasn't just Herod who didn't want Christ. Christ's people didn't want Christ. Now the text doesn't tell us exactly why. The best speculation we have is we've talked throughout this series about how the Jews had a misunderstanding of the role of the Messiah. They thought the Messiah was going to come and overthrow Rome. They were expecting a political leader, a warrior. And up until this point, there had been many attempts made to overthrow Rome. There was, for example, the famous Maccabean Revolt. Jews had been pushing against Rome and being slaughtered. You can do a little bit of history. Rome was merciless. You did not want to fall on the wrong side of Rome. And the Jews took that risk multiple times and they paid for it dearly. And so probably what's most likely happening, though we don't know for sure, is when word of the Messiah being born was announced, the Jews thought, it's time for more fighting. It's time for more bloodshed. As we try to follow the Messiah to overthrow Rome. You see, bad theology is matters. Error begets error. Because they didn't understand who the Messiah was, that led them to not even want him. They preferred, you know what, yeah, Rome has overtaken us, but at least we're comfortable. So Jesus, look at the scenario Jesus is born to. Yes, he has a small contingency, the angels, the shepherds, his family, that are so excited to see him. But he is not born into a welcoming world. He's born into a hostile world. We are reminded that there is no such thing as neutrality. 
We want our culture, our setting around us to, to believe that the world is mostly neutral to God. I, I, yeah, maybe he's there, maybe he's not. I, it doesn't matter to me, just show me the evidence. If, if, if it's true, then I'll believe it. If not, I won't. We, we want to paint ourselves before the regeneration of the Holy Spirit as if we're just kind of these kind, objective, neutral observers. Whatever is true, then I'll believe it. Just show me it's true. But you see, the Bible doesn't paint that picture of humankind for us. If you want to believe the Bible, you have no room in your theology for that. The Bible presents to us a picture of mankind being born in hostility to God. Romans chapter 1 says that we see God and we know him through what has been made, but we suppress that truth in unrighteousness, refusing to give thanks to him, and we exchange the truth for a lie. We are actively in rebellion against him. We are born in hostility to him. This is why in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against me. He doesn't leave any room for this middle ground. Well, I'm not really for him, but I'm not against him either. Let's hear him out. Jesus was born into a world that didn't want him. And most of it still doesn't. You want to know why? Because all of us are a lot more like Herod than we think. You don't have to be a king for Jesus to challenge you. You see, every person born in our natural state, we think we own our lives. We think my life belongs to me. I have dominion. I have authority. I have rule here. I can do with my body what I want to do because it's mine. I can do whatever I want to do because it's my life and my body and my family. We are all little kings of our lives. And the gospel is so offensive because it calls us to bow our knee. Jesus does not show up and present himself the way so much popular contemporary Christianity presents Jesus, like a 40-day trial. I've heard that all the, I mean, there's a, a whole book, a book about give Jesus a 40-day trial and I promise he'll improve your life. But that was not how Jesus presented himself. Jesus presented himself by saying things like, if you're not ready to take up your cross and die, then don't come. Stay away. If you come to me, you come to die. You come to surrender your life. You come to give your life away. It's not yours anymore. It's mine. Jesus came to take dominion over you. That's why the gospel is offensive. This is why it's easy to believe in a Jesus that we make up. There are a lot of people who are religious and believe in a God. It's not hard to worship God if you get to make the God. And this God just happens to love everything you love. And everything you want to do, this God just wants you to do it too. It's just a little mirror in the sky. Oh, that God looks just like me. Yeah, I'll, I'll give him my adoration and worship. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus comes and says, you're sinful, you're broken, you're in rebellion. Repent, bend your knee, and obey me. The gospel is a gospel of obedience. And we are like Herod. No, I don't obey. I run the show. This is my life. The gospel offends people because it tells them they're wrong. And it calls them to repent. 
It tells them you are not the Lord of your life. You are not in control. You will give an account. You will answer to someone above you. So you see, we're all like Herod before the Spirit changes us. We all recognize there's not room in this heart for two kings. There's one throne over this life right now, and I want to sit in it. We need to remember this. The world is hostile to the gospel. It's hostile to Christ. It doesn't want it. So this is our wake-up call. It's our back-to-work. But I want us to also notice this second very important point, though. This is not, you might be hearing this saying, well, that's kind of a downer. I just had a great Christmas, great Christmas Eve service, had fun with my family, and come in here and you put me down like that? This is not a call to be fearful. This is not a call to be sad or scared or upset or burdened. Because even though this text is very clear about the hostility of the world, which means our mission is hostile. Remember, it is Jesus who said that the world will hate you because they hated me first. The world doesn't want Jesus, and if you are united to him, they don't want you. So yes, this this is somewhat of an intimidating message as we are reminded that the world wants nothing to do with us in our religion. And they'll fight against it. Preaching the gospel is not easy. Living a Christian life in this world is not easy. So there is a a seriousness to this message, but it is not a reason to fret or be fearful or discouraged or afraid. Why? Because you want to know what we also see? We don't just see in this text that the world is hostile to God, but we also see that God is entirely sovereign over that hostility. The world is against God, but God's in control of their being against him. Why do I say that? Well, because notice the text very clearly implies what later on we read made clear. Herod was out to get Christ. But it didn't work. It didn't work. What are we reminded of in this text? We are reminded of the same message that Job had to learn the hard way. What does Job say at the end of all of his miseries and rebuke? I know that you, O God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What do we learn in this narrative? The purposes of God can't be thwarted. Herod can try, but he's powerless. The world can resist. They can try. They can push, but it's not going to work. As a matter of fact, this text, when we look at it closely, it goes so far beyond just Herod being thwarted. In other words, we can't even think of God's sovereignty over this hostility as if the world rebels, but they will be unsuccessful. Even that is too low a view of God. Herod is not merely being unsuccessful in his plans. He is also being successful in God's plans. Herod is not just being thwarted by God. He's being used by him. God is using his hostility. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 13 and onward with me. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for, those child, for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt 
and remained there until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I called my son. Herod tried to kill Jesus. And all Herod did was fulfill the plan of God. All Herod did was send Jesus exactly where God wanted Jesus to go. Herod is a pawn in the hands of a sovereign God. All through, you can read through Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and you will find over and over and over again, Matthew taking a break to say, by the way, this happened to fulfill the scriptures. By the way, this happened to fill the scriptures. I want us to see everything Rome does ends up working right into God's plan. The Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But Joseph and Mary were not from Bethlehem. But what happened? Rome just decided to have a census. So Rome sends Jesus to Bethlehem and God says, thank you. But then what happens? In our text, now Herod, he wants to kill Jesus. So they can't go back. That's not an option. So God says, why don't you go to Egypt? And then Herod's decision to try to kill the child sends them to Egypt and God says, thank you, Herod. Appreciate it. And by the way, the text tells us that they wanted to come back but after Herod died, but one of his family members took over and they were afraid that that family member was still going to be against us, so they decided to go back to Nazareth. And then Matthew tells us this was to fulfill that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. The Messiah had these contradictory, seemingly contradictory prophecies. He was supposed to be from Nazareth, but born in Bethlehem, yet at some point come out of Egypt. How can he be a Bethlehemite, a Nazarene, and an Egyptian? Well, thanks to Rome, all of those things came true. Thanks to Herod, those things came true. You see, God is not merely thwarting the plans of Herod. He's using them. We see this in Jesus' betrayal. Judas betrays Jesus. Was Jesus surprised? Oh! <gasps> How could this be? Jesus says, if the son of perdition does not betray me, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? Judas was hostile to Jesus, and he made his own evil, wicked choice to betray him for money. And it was evil, and it was wicked, and he will be judged for it. But what did God say? I thank you very much. Things are going exactly according to plan. Just as I predicted. Just as I said. We see with Herod, we see with Judas, that we do not need to be afraid of the world's hostility because God is in control of it. One more example. I know you probably get the point, but we can't talk about this subject and not look at this text. Turn, if you will, please, to Acts chapter 4. The premier shining example of this is ultimately found in the crucifixion. Acts chapter 4. We've looked at this many times from the pulpit here and be prepared to look at it many times over again. The apostles were recently arrested and they were told, you are not allowed to preach the gospel anymore or we will persecute you. And so the apostles leave and they go and they report to the church, uh, sorry guys, sounds like persecution's coming because we ain't stopping. And so the early church comes together and they break out into a corporate prayer together. And I want us to look at their prayer. It's quite incredible. Beginning, and we'll just go back. Let's look in verse 23. 
When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Let's stop there for a second. So the early church quotes from Psalm 2. And they see Psalm 2 being fulfilled in their day. And they're saying, look, the whole world is hostile to Jesus. The Gentiles and the Jews, they have come together against God's anointed one. And they say, look how this is fulfilled. Who is it that ultimately crucified Jesus? The whole world. Herod and Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Romans, they actually carried it out. But notice in, this, in the text, the peoples of Israel are also said to have gathered against the Son. Because who was it that chose Barabbas over Jesus? It wasn't the Romans. Israel and Gentiles alike have come together against the Son of God. And unlike Herod, it finally works. They kill him. It finally works. Throughout all of Jesus' ministry, there were times where the Jews tried to take him under arrest, but he escaped their, their snare. It finally worked. From a humanistic perspective, this should have been the, the greatest moment for evil. This is the greatest triumph of evil the world has ever known. Evil finally won. But we know they didn't because Jesus rose from the dead. And conquered death. But we also know they didn't because of what they go on to say right after. Look at verse 28. What did Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and Israel, what did they come together to do? Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They were not thwarting the plan of God. They were fulfilling the plan of God. Their hostility was going right according to plan. This is why Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This was part of the plan. So what does the post-birth narrative of Christ remind us of? It reminds us of the unfortunate truth that the world we live in is still largely very hostile to God. The world we live in is hostile to the Son of God, and therefore, by extension, they are hostile to us. We are living in a hostile world that doesn't want us or our God challenging them. But we also learn that we don't need to be fearful about that. We don't need to be discouraged. We don't need to be sad. Why? Because our God is in control. Nothing He has planned can be thwarted. The enemy cannot prevail against Him. So do we have our work cut out for us? We most certainly do. But we have a sovereign God who leads the way. We have a sovereign God in control of us, watching over us, shepherding us, keeping us, so that even though our work is daunting and intimidating, we really have no need to be afraid. So as a redeemer, I would call us post-Christmas, it's time to get back to work. It's time to work hard for the gospel, for the glory of God, to love one another rightly, 
and to take comfort in knowing that our God is in control and He is working and moving in the midst of us.